If you would remain standing and open your Bibles to John chapter 6, as we continue our study of John's Gospel. This morning, a short passage before us. I'm going to back up a couple of verses to verse 14 to help us kind of seat the way that John wants us to see Jesus walking on the water. John chapter 6, beginning in 14, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea, and coming near to the boat, they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. The word of the Lord. God. Let's pray and ask for help. Lord, we need you. Many, even in this room, are facing strong winds. Lord, as your followers, we are in need of your presence. And in this time, in this moment, we are in need of your presence. So would your spirit draw near? Be the comforter that we need. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear the good news of Christ, our King. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Today's text is a bit like a, a pair of glasses or contacts. If you've ever had vision problems, you know exactly what I mean. Things are blurry out there until suddenly they click through enough of those lenses and what was blurry suddenly becomes crisp and sharp. In a sense, that's exactly what John is doing with this text. On the heels of last week's text, there was a lot of confusion. It's just a weird ending, right? It's an odd ending. Perceiving that they were going to take him by force and make him king, well, Jesus is king. But he's not the kind of king that they wanted. So John wants to give us some glasses. He wants us to have the right prescription contacts to understand, to see clearly with sharp razor clarity who Jesus is. That's what this text is about today. We just saw Jesus take five barley loaves and two fish, this small boy's lunchbox, and feed thousands. The appeal to someone like this to be king, like, hey, this guy can provide for me. 
We'll just follow him around and we'll eat all the food. We'll have everything we need. And Jesus goes away. He says, I'm not that kind of king. Jesus leading the people, the greater Moses, all that is, is loaded into this text. And then at the end, Jesus just goes away. He goes up the mountain by himself. He leaves the crowds. We'll see that they'll work their way back around to Capernaum. He even leaves the twelve. He leaves his disciples. Why would Jesus leave? We see this in other Gospels. Jesus does this often, right? I believe to persevere in ministry as a man, he had to get away. He had to go away and pray. I think that's one element that we can see in the life of Christ. He, too, is a man. Could you imagine what he had just done? How long that must have taken? He goes to pray and commune with his father. But at times we also see Jesus distancing himself from his followers. And it's kind of odd unless you read all the way through where you see, oh, he's, he's leaving so he can come back into their lives and show himself with more clarity than he did before. I think that's exactly what he's doing here. I think all of this is intentional, them going off by themselves. He's going to come walking out on the waves so that they could put glasses on and see him with razor sharp clarity. I'm not that kind of king. I'm so much bigger than that. Last week, we saw a lack of food on display and Jesus miraculously providing for the needs of that massive crowd. However, the lesson here today is you can get and enjoy the good gifts of Jesus and not get Jesus himself. You can acquire the good gifts of Jesus without getting him. And we're not let off the hook from knowing who he is. He's the one who tramples the waves. I'm going to start with the need for Jesus in 16 through 19, and then the presence of Jesus in 20 and 21. First, the need for Jesus before we begin, just a note, some of you have probably heard this often, the Sea of Galilee is an interesting, uh, interesting sea. It sits six or seven hundred feet below sea level. That's, that's down there. The, the, the sea is, sits at that level. And all around it, you have high places especially winds coming from the south, which they often do, come from these high mountains and cliffs and come pouring down into the sea. And what happens when you take warm water that's that low and mix it with cold air that's fastly rushing down mountains? What happens? Storms. 
the same condition today. You can, you can look it up on YouTube. It's great. I did this week. Like, I've heard storms on the Sea of Galilee my whole life. What does that look like? I pulled it up. There it is. It's pretty crazy. It's not a huge sea. But so much of that matters in our text. This, why is the sea always so angry and violent? Well, it's, it makes sense. It still is to this day. In verse 16, we read, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Sounds a little ominous, but it gets worse. They got into a boat, started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And then it's to take a highlighter to it, he says, and Jesus was not with them. He's already told us Jesus was up the mountain praying, but here he wants us to, to see what that inside of that boat was like. The sea, dark, windy, and no Jesus. Jesus wasn't with them. Another detail that we need to know, a piece of background here, is Israelites didn't necessarily appreciate the sea life. That was meant for people like the Phoenicians. They were good at it. They were boat builders and they were good at trade on the open ocean. Israel did not like the sea. Historically, they weren't a seafaring people. This begins because they have the creation account in Genesis where everything was formless and void. That was a vast deep there. Chaos. And into that God speaks words attacking formlessness and void. Building kingdoms and then giving kingdom rulers. Another clue is revelation where we read that there will be no more sea, and you're like, what? I like my beach vacations. Why is he going to take the sea away? Listen to it. Revelation 21.1, There I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. It's not the way that you and I think about it. God is promising in Christ, he's going to take away everything that's scary. He's going to take away the, the demonic and chaotic thing and presence in your life, and it will be done away with. There will never be an entity like that again for you to fear. You see, they feared the sea. It was viewed as demonic and chaotic. Think about Jonah. That, that should highlight some of his experience as well, right? When he wanted to run from the Lord, he went to the place of chaos. It's not just that he hopped on a boat and he was super comfortable with it. No, his whole, his, he's defying his whole culture to run away from God. Here we see the disciples rowing out into chaos. See being viewed as, again, chaotic, demonic. A disordered jumble. It's foolish to navigate the sea anytime for them, but especially at night, especially when those cold winds are coming down, whipping across the sea. I think this is a picture of discipleship. 
is sometimes what it looks like to be a follower of Christ. Jesus sends followers into scenes like this. You are going to be over your head, out of your depth. Jesus does this intentionally. Do you think it was an accident that he wasn't there with them when they got in the boat? The synoptics tell us that he sent them. This is no accident. Like, Jesus, why would you do this? Why would you abandon them? Darkness here stands out as well. Augustine, in his commentary on John, says simply, it was right that he said it was dark. Darkness and light form this major theme, and we've seen it time and time already. We hear it in chapter 1, Jesus, the light is breaking into the darkness. In chapter 3, we see it as a mirror of Nicodemus' spiritual condition. In chapter 8, we see darkness as the backdrop of Jesus' famous words, I am the light of the world. In 13, after Jesus said that he would be betrayed, we read, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Darkness is a spiritual condition. Here in the dark on the stormy sea, they're rowing against the wind. It's blowing against them. It, it includes this detail that they're three or four miles out. It's eight miles wide. They're in the middle. They're in the middle. How can we see this in our own lives? I think one thing is just to know this, following Jesus, being his disciple, will not always be easy. Sometimes it will. Sometimes it'll feel like a pasture full of green grass where Jesus just overwhelms us with a feast of joy. And maybe in the very next moment, our Christian life will feel like the stormy sea at night. I don't know why I'm here. I don't have the resources to get to the other side. I'm in a fight for my life. Jesus never promised anything other than that. Do we remember when we're in the midst of a storm heading into waters that we can't control? that time and time again, Jesus said this would not be easy. What did he tell the rich young ruler? Go sell everything you have. Everything. Give the proceeds to the poor and then follow me. He's throwing him into the sea at storm. He told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Sometimes the Christian life is going to feel like a feast that Jesus just gives us. And other times, it's going to feel like a sea at storm. We often don't think like this, especially good, hardworking Americans. We're told you're smart enough, you work hard enough, you can achieve. 
If you're a Christian, if you can be wise enough, have everything together on the outside, you're going to be fine. We believe that when the storms come, we're not going to know what to do with them. Why do we need Jesus if we trust ourselves, our own resources? Verse 18 tells us, not only is it night, not only is Jesus not with them, but then they give out. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. This week I read a really interesting article. Here's the title of it. Failure is a good thing in the upside down kingdom of Jesus. Failure is a good thing in the upside down kingdom of Jesus. It's a great title. And it went on to talk about just that. Sometimes as Christians, we will be called to fail. It's going to happen. Here are the disciples out in the middle, running out of steam. Many of them did this for a living. They're running out of steam. They were called by Jesus to go out there and fail. Here's the thing. Failure has the potential of exposing those places inside us that need Jesus. Failure can expose to our own hearts those places that we think we have it all together. And when we fail, we realize, oh, I don't have it all together. I really do need Jesus. None of us like to fail. I'm not saying that I brag about my failures. I'm just saying that time and time again we see Jesus using them for his purposes in our lives, which are good. What's the answer for the darkness, the wind that blows against us and stalls us out? John puts this right in the center. When they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near their boat. And they were frightened. Jesus walking on a stormy sea. And the disciples were scared. Jesus, notice this, Jesus was the cause of fear. What's the vast commandment in the Old Testament? What is the very beginning of wisdom? Fear of God. Do you see, I think that this other Jesus, this other kind of king that they wanted over here, they weren't afraid of him. There was no fear of God. Yea, he can provide, but no fear. Here they have, they are utterly in awe. Here Jesus is, he's finally with them. You're like, whew, he's he's finally saving the day. But the the glimpse that John gives us is one of fear. Again, how are we going to see Jesus with these new glasses on? A Jesus that walks on the waves of the sea. Does he provide? Yes, he provides. But should he 
terrify us with his glory and beauty and what he's capable of. Yes. Yes. There are clues here to the whole point. Jesus is none other than the God-man who rules every molecule of nature. He made it. He walks in the storm over the waves. Here is Jesus. Not a Jesus whose only role is it to fuel our comfort in life and give us a free meal. That's part of it. That's part of his loving shepherding of this huge crowd. But here's another part. A Jesus who commands our utter submission and awe. Yes, Jesus is a shepherd king who provides abundantly for his people, but he's also the king of Psalm 77. Let me read this. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. That's Jesus. John is cluing us in. He's huge. It's the same thing he's doing in the introduction. He's doing the same exact thing. Look how big he is. Last week, it's, it's look at his compassion, but lest we misunderstand, look at, be in awe at this Jesus. This is the kind of king he is. This is our king. This is the king that we need to navigate the storm of life. What does Aslan say? Some question about the safety of our, the, the Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, about the safety of this Aslan. What, what's the line? He's good, but he is not safe. Exactly, that's exactly it. That's it in this text. Put the right glasses on. Know who you're dealing with. How can we begin to think about this for ourselves? Specifically, Christ's leaving and returning, and then this going on in this way, Cyril of Alexandria, this is a, a fourth century pastor has a great one. Let me read it to you. Quote, Christ does not appear to those in the boat immediately after they set sail or at the onset of danger, but only when they are far away from the shore. For the grace of our Savior does not come when our tribulations begin, but when our fear is at its height and the danger shows itself to be great, when we are found in the waves of affliction, then Christ appears unexpectedly, removes our fear, and frees us from all danger. By his ineffable power, he changes horror into joy, and as it were, calms the storm." End quote. He takes us there to show us himself. This is easy when you're not in the midst of affliction. But when you're in it, it's hard. Child of God, 
those of you facing waves, darkness, the wind of life, Christ has not abandoned you. He's not left you. In fact, he called you into this. He will not leave you. So having looked at the need for Jesus, we turn to life with Jesus. What's going to happen? How is his presence going to transform the situation? When all hope seems lost, here he comes. Earlier, we, we referred to this as a creational reference, this, um, this stormy situation, chaos, demonic. And into that, what does God do? All you have to think is Genesis 1. What does God do? He speaks. He speaks into that, and everything changes. What would we expect Christ to do? With the void and chaos that is in the middle of the sea and his disciples in their tiny little boat fighting the wind, what, is, what, what should we expect? The word of God comes to them. Into the chaos of that situation we hear Jesus speak. It's exactly what we should expect. He's done it before. Out of this void, God brings life. And here we hear the words of Jesus, verse 20. But he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. What takes the disciples from horror and and terror and difficulty? What, What takes them from that place to gladness? It's the word of Christ. It's his word. That's what John is going after again and again and again. And even in this text, he's beating the drum. His signs are great, but what's going to bail you out? It's his word. Listen to his word. Hear the word of God and believe. It's the whole purpose of the book. Here it is right here. And we see the transformation that it makes. Child of God, what can take us from fear? to gladness? What can take us from utterly out of our depth, out of our resources, from that place to contentment? I argue the same word. The same word. The word of Christ coming to our troubled soul. We, much like the disciples in the middle of this lake, need to hear Jesus again and again and again remind us, it is I. Do not be afraid. The command of Jesus here is very familiar, perhaps the most frequent command given to God's people in all of Scripture. Do not be afraid. That is only possible with the first part, however. Know who is with you. Know that Christ is with you. Why the encouragement to read our Bible? Is it so we can feel so great and holy? And man, I read my Bible and that joker over there, he's not doing it. He's he's dropped his uh, Bible reading plan. 
No, it's so time and time again in the chaos of who we are, we are reminded the truth of who God is. Why don't we just come to worship together once a year? Because that's not enough. We need to affirm to one another week in and week out, day in and day out of these truths. Jesus saying, it is me, it is I. Do not be afraid. We need the word of life. Notice also Jesus' statement in our Bibles. It reads, it is I. This is not as helpful as it is in other places in John where it will actually give the same words. It will translate like this. I am. I am. Jesus stands as God over the waters and says to his disciples the sacred name, I am. Does that name remind us of anything? Exodus chapter 3, the bush that burns and is not consumed, and Moses walking up there, Moses, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. And then this interaction with him about going to the people and leading them out as God's emissary to, to Israel in slavery in Egypt. Do you remember all of that? At one point, he, Moses says to him, they're going to ask me who sent me. They're going to ask me about who you are. What should I tell them? And what, what does God say? He simply says, I am. Yahweh, that's his name. And when they ask who sent, you say, Yahweh sent you. The covenant God, God himself, here on the, walking on the water to the disciples, Jesus simply says, I am. We're going to hear this seven more distinct times across John. I am the bread of life, light of the world, door of the sheep, resurrection and life, good shepherd, way the truth and the life. I am the true vine. Seven, seven I am statements, very famous. We're going to dig into those. Here he simply says one thing. It is I. I am. And unless there's any confusion, this is the it's in Greek, but this is the exact way that they translate I am in the Old Testament. This is, this is the, the Old Testament God. These people that want to make these hard breaks and say this is something totally different, it's crazy. This is him. Here he is. The I am creator God. It's me. I am, do not be afraid. It's remarkable. Before all the lovely qualifications to I am, we just, we get the raw version right here. This is a huge link for us in our faith. We see God all throughout the Old Testament loving and preserving his people fighting their battles for them, providing for them. There is continuity here. Grace, we like to sing psalms. We just sang a piece of one, and we heard it read for us earlier. This is really remarkable. When, when you think about, and I'm going to read this portion of Psalm 107 again, and think about this text, Okay. 
Picking up in verse 23, some went down to the sea in ships doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven and they went down into the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from all their distress. He made the storm be still. The waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad, and the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. It's almost like Jesus read his Bible. Consider that. God coming out on the sea, God coming to his people in a stormy, wind-tossed sea, God hearing the cry for deliverance, God delivering them from distress, stilling the storm, making the water quiet, and bringing them to their desired haven. Child of God, for those of you who know Christ, in John's lingo, for those of you who believe on his name, this is you. This is your God. God offers us his peace in the midst of the storm. God is with his people. The great I am is there. Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him in into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. It is I. The the great I am is with you. Don't be afraid. And then they were like, Jesus, come on. I guess the question is very simple. Is Jesus in in your boat? It utterly changes everything. The presence of Jesus, God himself with them, God being close. He is their means of safety and he takes them safely to land and he will take them to their desired destination. These glasses and contacts that we're invited to put on, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, God with us. That is a great lesson for discipleship. It's very simple. You're like, is that it? Is that the point? Yes, that's exactly the point. God with us. What a comfort. You ever seen see a dad do something crazy for a kid or a mom do something just outrageous for a kid in trouble? Something else. I saw something like that once. This golf cart was parked, uh, parked precariously on the side of a hill. A couple of little kids, they weren't driving the cart, they were too small to be doing that, were sitting in the golf cart. One of them hits the gas pedal, and what happens when you hit the gas pedal on one of those carts? The emergency brake kicks off. Kicks off, so then, then the cart just started gravity. The car started just rolling down the hill. And I saw a dad just unleash. Like way out, way too out of shape to do what this person did. Ran down the hill like a hundred yards. Lost his shoes in the process. 
but caught the cart and got the kids out. It's amazing. It's just being with your kids. Presence. The things that we will do to be present. And what, what is that compared to, to this loving God? Who would run us down, careening out of control, and say, I am with you. I will not let you go. You're mine. This is what we are invited into with Christ, with us. Those of you here today who might not know Christ, this is the kind of love that will take you all the way home. The love of Christ for sinners. All the toil that the disciples were up against, all the anxiety of the sea and storm, all the struggle and doubt was at an instant gone. Do you, do you notice that word immediately? They were where they were going. I was talking with somebody about this this week. I don't know what that means. I don't, it, it could mean two things. It could mean there's a totally different miracle, okay? Jesus gets into the boat. They were all glad to see him. Boom, they're parked. They're docking up. That's one way to see it. Another way to see it is they were so enamored with him. They were so taken by him. His presence changed everything that the next thing they knew, they were pulling up to land. Like, where did the time go? Immediately, they weren't looking at their watches anymore. They weren't like, man, we've been out here seven hours of this. Immediately, their whole perspective changed. They were simply with Jesus. And he was like, I'm going to take you home. crazy thing about this passage too is because we know where the story is going. He gets his disciples out of a deadly jam. Sticky situation that could have cost all their lives. They could have been lost at sea. But because we know the rest of the story, we know that exactly where he is going. He is going to undergo wrath he is going to accept death. He is going to take it on himself. He who spares others the wrath of the storm is going to turn his face and walk directly into it for us. He is going to take wrath for sinners like us so that he can save us, rescue us, so that we can hide from the storm in him. You see, he's, he's rescuing others from the storm, but there will be no rescue for him. He's going to face it. Jesus is the one that gets them back to the shore. Notice it doesn't say one more word about their toil. Not one. It's not their efforts. It's not how much they can strive with their muscles. With Jesus, he, he takes them home. That is the offer we have today. When at last I near the shore and the fearful breakers roar, twixt me and thy peaceful rest, then while leaning on thy breast, may I, may I hear thee say to me, I love the reverse in that song, don't you? 
Asking, asking, asking Jesus to pilot us. And then the end, what does he say? I will pilot you. Jesus offering himself. It's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us. Lord, would you be near to those in the storm? May your presence change utterly everything. Lord, remind us of the greatness of your gospel. We think we need so many other things when really what we need is you present with us. So would you be near to us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.